0: You ever have a moment where you're going full speed in one direction and then something happens and it just kind of stops you in your tracks? Several years ago, I was camping with my daughters, and it was late, sun had set, we were walking back to our tent, it was dark, and well, Emma and I were walking, but Brie at that time, she's running everywhere, she wasn't walking anywhere, and she was running almost right into this herd of elk. Finally, she saw them, stopped her in her tracks, stopped my heart for a couple of seconds. She had to course correct. You know, we've all experienced things like that, haven't we? Where we're walking somewhere, we see something kind of stops us in our tracks. Or maybe you're making plans, you're getting ready for something, and then you got a course correct like what happened with COVID. Everybody's making plans for the summer and the fall and what's going to happen next. And then, hey, everyone's course correcting. We've got to do things just a little bit differently. Well, as we continue our study through the book of Exodus, it'd be easy to keep charging ahead, taking about a chapter or so at a time. And we'll do that a lot of weeks. But as is our practice here at Central, we just go verse by verse through the scriptures. And sometimes you got to take just a little bit extra time just to look and to see what's happening. And We understand here at Central that God's word is what makes the difference in our lives. It's not the power of the messenger, it's the power of the message. And biblical preaching is always the pronouncement of God's truth, the explanation of his scriptures to God's people so that they can live according to his word. And so, This morning, we are going to slow down a little bit because in the Exodus story here, the Hebrews, they reach a moment where they almost stop in their tracks for just a little bit. Things will happen. And just to set the scene for you to remember where we are in the book of Exodus, the Hebrew people, they've reached this impasse because hope, Is almost fading here a little bit. Moses had failed to deliver them. He'd he'd blown it. The Hebrews are oppressed. It seems as if Pharaoh is winning the day, that these people are now doomed to a life of slavery. Moses, uh, he looked like he was going to be this great leader, but now he's exiled in some distant foreign land. So, These next few verses, they're easy to gloss over. They're easy just kind of read through, read right through them, but they're going to set the stage for the next movement of hope. For this week though, we remember hope begins with a burden. Let's check it out. Exodus chapter two, verses 22 through 25 reads this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Before we really dive into these three verses, I want to highlight several theological themes from the first couple of chapters that we might have kind of missed or just kind of glossed over. But they're going to be really important as we kind of transition to this section this morning and even next week as we move ahead in the story. So first, I just want you to remember that when God gives a mandate, he makes a way. When God gives a mandate, he makes a way. Remember all the way back at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. God makes Adam and Eve and he gives this mandate to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. This is God's mandate to God's people, be fruitful and multiply. That's the mandate. Now, the Hebrews are living under the evil rule of this Pharaoh, and he's trying desperately to make sure that the Hebrew people, that they don't multiply, that their birth rate goes way down. And so you had this repetition in Exodus chapter 1 that the Hebrews are growing, that they continue to multiply. You see it in verses 7 and verses 10, verse 12, verses 20. The mandate that God gave to humanity, and then the promise that he would later give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, it was being fulfilled. The Hebrews were multiplying, even when they were faced with the most brutal conditions. And that's important, because as you read the scripture... You just got to imagine reading this for the first time. And you're at this point in the story and you're thinking, man, things look hopeless for the Hebrews. I mean, the leader, the guy who had this miraculous birth story and he had all this experience and education, the guy who looked uh, like maybe he could do something, well, he's off in exile. He's quarantined away and Midian things aren't looking so good. But you're still reading with hope. Because you, you, say, you remember a God who says, hey, I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt back to Canaan. You remember the promise that God has made, the covenant that he's made, the commitment that he's made to his people. And so you read with hope because you've seen in this meta narrative of scripture, even so far, that what God says he makes happen. When God makes a promise, he fulfills it. When God makes a mandate, he makes a way. And so there's still hope. And we have this in our lives as well. We don't just read with hope. We live with hope. We live with this expectation that God's going to show up, that even in the darkest of circumstances, that God's going to reach in, that he will make a way. We live with hope because if God makes, gives a mandate, he makes a way. He's going to fulfill his promises. We also see in these first two chapters that God makes the weak strong. Uh, he makes the weak strong. In the days of the pharaohs, in the, the days of the Egyptian dynasty, I mean, women were, they, they were considered wise, they were considered s- strong, they were, they were almost at the bottom of the totem pole there. They were weak. Every, everyone knew they were weak. And yet God's going to use these seemingly powerless, seemingly weak women to stand up to the most powerful man in the, of the most powerful nation in the world. They're going to stand up to the king of Egypt, stand up to Pharaoh. I mean, you see it, right, uh, with the Hebrew midwives, these two young single women. And what do they do? They say, no, we're not following that plan. We're not doing that. They stood up to the king of Egypt. And then with Moses' miraculous birth story, you know who gets the attention there in those first 10 verses? It's ultimately God, but it's the women. It's Moses' mother and Moses' sister. You know, his father's not even mentioned, but they're the ones who seem to be planning and scheming and fighting for Moses to live. And then it's Pharaoh's own daughter. I mean, this princess that she's going to adopt Moses despite her father's evil uh, rule, and despite his evil edicts that he's given. So it's the seemingly weak women who overrules the one who seems to be so powerful. God can make the weak strong, and that's important, because it causes us to read with this sense of wonder. I mean, we wonder because we look at Moses and we look at him and here's this strong guy, he's this great leader. We see his background, his education, his experiences, all that he's done here his first 40 years in Egypt and the the privilege that he's grown up with and everything. And you're thinking, yes, this is a leader. This is somebody. And now he's exiled off into Midian and he's a nobody. He's just wandering around in the wilderness. But you still read with wonder because you almost think, could it be that God could take Moses, a man who thought he was somebody for 40 years, send him into Midian, and he discovers that he's a nobody, would he then discover that God can use a weak nobody much more than he can use a proud somebody? See, that's important, because no matter how insignificant you may feel, no matter how small, no matter how ill-equipped, no matter how overmatched, God can still use you. God will use you. God loves to use the weak things of this world when they rely on him and when people trust in him to, conf- to confront the powerful things. When we are weak, he is strong. You know, we sung it as a kid, but it's so true. And we recognize that. And when we rely on him in our weakness, he really is strong. We see that in the Exodus story. We also saw last week, The first recorded event in Moses' adult life, he goes out and he sees a Hebrew who's being beaten by an Egyptian. So he kills the Egyptian, hides the the body in the sand. And we see this deliverance that Moses is trying to offer the Hebrew people based on his power, his timetable, his rationale. Well, it's just not going to go anywhere because he wanted to be a leader, and instead he becomes a fugitive. He wanted to be accepted. He wanted people to follow him. Instead, he's rejected. Everybody's afraid of him. He ends up hightailing it out of there, fearing for his life, wandering around in Midian. Uh, Things look okay for him in Midian, but it's not the plan. He knows, "I, I was made for more than this. I'm a wanderer now in a foreign land. And in that incident, God is letting us know that it's not going to be a person who's going to be able to provide deliverance. It's not going to be a person who's going to bring salvation to the Hebrew people and, and bring them into freedom and allow them to escape this bondage that they've been living under. It's going to take God himself. Yeah, God's going to actively use Moses. I mean, in his grace, he's going to use Moses. But it's going to take God himself to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And this shapes how we live doesn't it shapes how we how we pray it it shapes how how we share it it, it shapes the way we we respond to people because we understand that ultimately we are unable to deliver friends to deliver family members to deliver our community from whatever pits of despair and hopelessness that they may be suffering from the only way to get them to a place of salvation a place of hope is Jesus yeah in his grace and God's grace he uses us to be a part of the process but it's him. It's ultimately God. It's ultimately Jesus who can do it. And so with these theological underpinnings that are being developed in our hearts and our minds, we read knowing that, hey, when God mandates, he makes the way that we read knowing that God takes the weak and makes them strong. We read knowing that it's ultimately going to take God to provide deliverance and salvation for people. And so... We also read at this point in the story and we see the king of Egypt has died. The king of Egypt has died. This is big news. It says during those many days, the king of Egypt died during those many days. And we know we can do the math and we can see, well, during those many days, were a lot of days. Because when you look at Exodus uh, chapter six, we see that Moses returned to Egypt when he was 80 years old. And when we look at Acts chapter seven, we see that Moses was 40 when he left Egypt. So it had been a period of close to 40 years that Moses was in Midian when the Pharaoh, the evil Pharaoh finally died. Yeah. During those many days, he finally died and the death of the King of Egypt, you know, that's big news. It'd be big news today. I mean, this is the most powerful man on earth at the time leading the most powerful nation in the world. And, At first, I'm sure it was welcome news to the Hebrews. I mean, perhaps his wicked ways, his wicked rule will be gone with him. But the death of this one king just brought the succession of the next king. And that didn't mean anything good for the Hebrews because nothing was going to change. It wasn't going to bring any relief. It wasn't going to bring any any freedom. There would be no escape from the bondage, the slavery that they were living in. Uh, There may have been a new king. But the government policies, their economic policies, their social policies, their religious policies, all of their policies toward the Hebrews, well, they would all stay the same. There's a new leader, but the policies stay the same. The tyrannical leadership over these enslaved people would continue. Can you imagine for a moment? I mean, how the Hebrews must have felt. You're living in slavery but you're still in the second generation, right? You, you, you heard the stories of your grandparents and what it was like to live under previous pharaohs and how things were good in Egypt and the Hebrews were prospering in Egypt. But you've been in slavery now. You've seen your parents and they've been resilient. You've been resilient through a lot. And you've been hoping that one day things would change, that perhaps when this evil pharaoh leaves, things would go back to the way things were under previous pharaohs, that perhaps we could have freedom again, we could experience just life again. And so the pharaoh dies and you're hoping now is the time we can return to the way things were, we can experience the life that our grandparents talked about. But then it happens and this new king, well, he's just as evil as the last one. And you begin to wonder, are things ever gonna change? You begin to lose heart. And so when things don't change, the Hebrews, you get the sense for the first time in 80 years that this resilient bunch of people collectively cry out to God. They just begin groaning and crying out to God. They had waited patiently for a new Pharaoh, hoping things would be different. And now the resiliency starts to fade because this next Pharaoh is just as evil as the last one. And so they're crying. And as they're crying, there's something else going on because the death of this king, it also lets us know that perhaps Moses can return to Egypt. Perhaps the scene will be set that Moses can come back. In fact, God will eventually say to Moses in Exodus chapter four that, hey, Moses, you can go back to Egypt now because the people who wanted to kill you, they're dead. And so now the Hebrews, they're crying out to God and they're groaning and they're pleading, God, you gotta do something, you gotta deliver us. And when you read that and you see the condition that they're living under, it almost makes you think because then it says that God remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And you start to wonder, did God just forget for a while? Did did he just allow these people to experience just years of brutal oppression? Did he just forget? Did it take them just to kind of bond together and cry out that then God remembered because he heard and so that's what's going to motivate him to act? I want you to remember something about God, okay? God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He never forgets anything. God does not forget his people. When you see that phrase, God remembered, what it means is God is going to act upon his promises or upon what he has said in the past in a way that is noticeable and discernible to his people. You know, oftentimes God is at work. He's always at work, but oftentimes we don't see it we miss it we can't detect what God is doing and God had been at work this whole time I mean you think about think about this miraculous birth story of Moses how God moved the heart of uh, the daughter of Pharaoh this Egyptian princess so that Moses could live yeah God was at work And think of how God had shaped Moses' life, how he allowed him to grow up in Egypt and have all of that education, the skill of leading armies and see the inner workings of Egypt and all that that was like, and then how God would bring him to the wilderness of Midian. Because, you know, the day would come when Moses would have to leave both in Egypt and in the wilderness. And Moses had been through both schools. He knew what it would take. God God was moving. He was already at work. He was using now just the ordinary, everyday life events, the death of a king, to bring about this homecoming for Moses. You see, God does not forget his people he knows he understands and so the cries of of the people that that's not what motivates god to act he'd been working he'd been acting long before those tears were ever shed in fact the cries of the people they really demonstrate the result of god's work of redemption in their hearts and minds that they were now brought to a place where they realize the only way we're getting out of this is if God steps in. He's got to be our deliverer. See, God's often working his, his plans in ways that we can't see, in ways that we can't detect. Sometimes when God seems most absent, Oh, he's most gloriously present. And so we understand that, we know that, we cling to that, but we also understand that God loves to work in conjunction with the faith of his people. And so when they cry out, well, the stage has already been set, but now they are coming aboard, they're asking for God's help. And so with the stage already set, it's about to be showtime. You know what else? As you read this And it's really this prologue to Moses' ministry. If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you can't help but think about the prologue to Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter one and two. You remember what was happening back then, Matthew one and two? Herod is hunting Jesus. Herod wants Jesus dead. So what happens? Jesus, his family, they have to leave. Mary and Joseph, they take little Jesus and they go into Egypt. And they hide out in Egypt for a while until Herod dies. And then an angel comes to Mary and Joseph and says, Hey, you can go back to Israel. It's safe now. Those who wanted to kill Jesus are dead. So now, remember, Matthew's Gospel was originally written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And the Jewish audience in those days, they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They memorized large portions of it. I mean, these are very knowledgeable people in the Old Testament. So you can just imagine that there's somebody up there, and he's got this scroll of Matthew's Gospel, and he begins reading. And then they hear this, they hear this story, this miraculous birth story of Jesus and, and how he was taken out out of Israel into Egypt, waiting to come back into Israel. And then eventually he's allowed to because Herod the leader is dead they would hear that and they would immediately think of Moses. It's so reminiscent of how the prologue to Moses' ministry would happen. It's so similar to then what would happen in Jesus' ministry. So as they're hearing this and they know Moses was the great deliverer of the Hebrew people, could Jesus be the great deliverer of all people? Could Jesus be the Messiah? You understand the events in Moses' life are intentionally reminiscent of what would come in Jesus' life. It foreshadows the ultimate redemptive plans that God would use through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's all foreshadowed by what's happening with Moses in the Exodus. You know, there's something else going on here, too, that... When you first read through this passage, it's almost hard for us to read because we look at it and we we think, uh, you know, God is responding to humanity and it's based on us and based on our cries that God's going to act. But we see that when we really read the motivation of what gets God to act on behalf of the Hebrew people, it says God remembered the covenant that he made To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God God is not going to act because of the cries of the people. God is not going to act because of the worth of the Hebrew people. I mean, you look at the the Hebrew people, and yeah, there were some shining stars. You got Abraham, you got Joseph, you got some shining stars in there. But man, there's a lot of evil too. I mean, the, the, the... Their history is riddled with just deceit and all kinds of of evil. Maybe they weren't as bad as the Egyptians, but it was evil nonetheless. God is not going to respond to them based on their worth. God's not going to respond to them because they're grieving, because they're they're going through some hard times. God's not going to respond to the people. He's not going to deliver them because of their, their tears, because of their trouble, God is ultimately going to save his people, deliver his people because of his covenant, because of his promise because of his commitment. God will save the Hebrew people because of the promise that he made to Abraham that was then given to Isaac and Jacob and now to them. He had told Abraham that this exodus experience would happen and that his people would live in bondage. It was all a part of his plan. So as the Hebrews finally cry out, God is simply going to act based upon his covenant, based upon his promise, based upon his commitment. See, we want to read that and we want to think, ah, but it's got to be because humanity like, bonded together and with her wisdom and her ingenuity and just pleaded with God and that, that moved God. We want to amount to something. We want to be significant. But what we see, what God really reveals, is that he's a much better God than we think we want, than we think we desire. I mean, don't you see? The cries of God's people do not motivate God to be a loving God. The peril of God's people, the predicament in their pain, that does not motivate God to be a loving God. The, the, the worth of God's people, it does not motivate him to be a loving God. He already was. He already was a loving God. He was just patiently, lovingly, and actively waiting for his people to recognize that they need him. He was already working for them, working behind the scenes in ways they couldn't detect, in ways they couldn't see. He was already at work. He's just waiting for them to say, yes, I want what you have to offer. And then, well, it's showtime. But he's going to act, not based upon their cries, their worth, their merit, their tears, their pain, their suffering. He's going to act simply because of his character, because that's the kind of God he is. You know, when it says God remembered, it's describing God in human terms so that we can try to understand him in some ways. Our finite minds are just not able to fully comprehend God, but he uses this anthropomorphism to kind of help us understand a little bit of who God is. And so when God remembers, it's simply, I'm going back to my promises, and I'm going to act accordingly in a way that you can see. God acts, God loves, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. God loves you because of who he is. And you know, that's such good news because the way he worked on behalf of the Hebrews is the way he works on behalf of us. He loves us. He saves us. He works on our behalf, not because of our merit. We don't merit Jesus. We, and it's not our tears that, that, okay, well, because you cried so much, I'm going to send Jesus. It's not that. God sent his son for us simply because he loved us. that That's just who he is and nothing you can do can separate you from the love of God. That's the promise that God makes to us that God loves simply because of who he is. He cannot love you anymore, he cannot love you any less. God is compassionate, God adopts, God saves simply because of who he is. He's just lovingly, patiently, and actively waiting for us to recognize that we need him too, that that we accept the love that he wants to share. And so we come to this passage of scripture, we see that God's ultimate response to the cries of the children of Israel, God's ultimate response to the tears of humanity, well, it's based on his covenant, it's based on his promise. And his promise, his covenant, it would be sealed in blood. And you know whose blood it was? It wasn't the blood of bulls and goats, it was the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, When God tells the Hebrews here at the end of this section that I saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. He really did know. He knew all their suffering. He knew all their hurt. And he knew what it was going to take to deliver them from it. He knew the pain of suffering. He knew it because he knew what his son would go through on the cross. You know, when God says that he understands our pain, that we have a God who can sympathize with us, he does not merely empathize, he sympathizes, he understands our pain. And what's more, he's done something about it. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from the peril, the pain, the predicament of this world. And so these four verses, just four verses, they they stop us in our tracks and they leave us with a burden for more Jesus. And after all, hope begins with a burden. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you respond to us not based on who we are, because we would never measure up, but based on who you are. And because of that, your love for us never changes. God, help us to share with people your love that you have for them. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.